remain standing as we go to the sermon text this morning, which is in Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10 and going through verse 13. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10. Paul says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we are the sheep of your pasture, and as sheep we must be fed, and we must drink, and we, we eat and drink of what you provide. We recognize that these words here are the words of life. This is the word of life. May we hold fast to it, and may we also hold it forth. We ask you that you would nourish us by this word this morning. And that you would feed us with a food that the world does not know about. We ask most of all that our meat and our drink would be to do your will as it was for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we imitate him in a heart and a passion for doing what pleases you and for being pleased by what you do. Make us a contented people. Help us to know how to be content not only in adverse circumstances, but also when all is well and when grain and new wine abound, help us to be content only in the Lord who strengthens us in any and every circumstance. So we pray that we would be a Christian people who shows forth this rare jewel to the world. May we shine forth as a congregation this jewel even within the church. May we show contentment in any and every circumstance just as Paul instructs that the secret can be learned here. In, in such a way, may we belong to the school of Christ as scholars and disciples who are following after Him. We pray in His name, Father. Amen. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the commentators that has been extremely helpful in our study of Philippians to me as I have prepared for sermons. I want to remind you a little bit about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones so that you can recall the significance or or understand the significance of uh, his context that we're about to read a quote from him about. Um, he, He lived in the early 1900s And he was actually trained as a medical doctor. But out of that, he felt called to pastor. So he he was actually a a doctor of medicine, but then he took his diagnostic approach to um, uh, medicine and applied that to being an exegete of the Word. And he was so good at applying Scripture to his situation. He had a diagnostic 
method of preaching. And what I'm about to read you is uh, from a sermon that he preached on this text that we've studied, Philippians 4, about verses 10 through 13. And he preached this right after the Second World War. So he preached this uh, in, in, the, in the country of Britain after uh, they had had such a, a hard assault from the Germans and uh, London had been bombed over and again by the Germans. Uh, the people there had seen how feeble their dominion was. They had seen how, how nearly their country fell to uh, the advance of the, of the Germans. So that's the context for what he's about to say. And if you'll listen carefully, this is a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's very rewarding for the direction that we want to go today on contentment. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We are living in days and times of uncertainty. And it may well be that the first and greatest lesson we have to learn is how to live without allowing circumstances to affect our inner peace and joy. And yet perhaps there was never a time in the history of the world when it was so difficult to learn this lesson as it is today. The whole of life is so organized at the present time as to make it almost impossible to live this self-sufficient Christian life. Even in a natural sense, we are also dependent on things that are being done for us and to us and around and about us that has become most difficult to live our own lives. We switch on the wireless or the television and gradually become dependent upon them. And it is the same with our newspapers, our cinemas, our entertainment. The world is organizing life for us in every respect and we are becoming dependent upon it. There was a good illustration of that in the early days of the last war when the blackout regulations were first imposed upon us. We used to hear of something which was described as the boredom of the blackout. People found it almost impossible to spend a succession of nights in their own homes doing nothing. They had become dependent upon the cinema, the theater, and other forms of entertainment. And when these things were suddenly cut off, they did not know what to do with themselves. That is the very antithesis of what Paul is describing here. But increasingly, it is becoming the tendency in life today. Increasingly, we are becoming dependent upon what others are doing for us. This, alas, is not only true of the world in general, it is becoming true also of Christian people in particular. Professor White had ordered a great truth when he said in his definition of religion, religion is what a man does with his own solicitude. You and I, in the last analysis, are what we are alone. Well, if you heard in that quote, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was bemoaning that his culture had reached a time where people were always wanting to be entertained. They always wanted to turn on the radio, which he called the wireless. Or it was the TV. Or they were going to the theater. They were constantly wanting to read something in the newspaper or to have some uh, entertainment or infotainment sent their way. Doesn't that sound like us? Aren't we in a similar place with our wireless? 
We have wireless devices now that fit in our pockets. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the contentment that Paul describes here is the very antithesis of being dependent upon a phone or a laptop for your happiness. Uh, He describes the boredom of the blackout in World War II when they had to conserve electricity. They weren't able to to use that or perhaps it was not to have lights on during some of the bombings. I don't know for sure all the reasons. But for whatever reason, uh, they weren't able to have their regular diet of entertainment. And people found it very difficult to just be alone, to be content with themselves. But as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if we're going to imitate Paul in his contentment, we need to have a contentment that comes from Christ. And just as Paul could be content from a jail cell, so we should be content in any and all circumstances. That's what he says in verse 11. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And then in verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So he is universal in the circumstances he describes. There is no circumstance in which the Christian can defend himself or herself in a lack of contentment. Discontentment can never be defended in the Christian life. I want to revisit for a minute both the wisdom and the folly of the Stoics that we studied last week. The Stoics gained influence uh, I think as much as 400 years before Christ was born. And of course that much, a little more, before Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. Socrates was uh, influential in laying some ground for Stoicism. Zeno picked up with it uh, many hundred years before Christ came. And Stoicism was the way to live your life uh, by the time of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Stoicism really held sway. Uh, It it was uh, one of the leading philosophies and it contrasted only with uh, Epicureanism, which was having as much fun as possible and Stoicism was living a very disciplined life. I want to revisit what the Stoics got right. I want to quote William Barclay to, to, to say this. The Stoics rightly believed that contentment did not consist in possessing much, but in wanting little. If you want to make a man happy, they said, add not to his possessions, but take away from his desires. Socrates was once asked, who was the wealthiest man? He answered, he who is content with least, for Autarchia is nature's wealth. Autarchia is uh, a cognate, a re- relative of the word that Paul is using here for contentment. It is a word that literally means self-sufficiency. And it was the chief of the virtues of the Stoics. You wanted to be self-sufficient, which as we studied last week, was being independent of your external circumstances. Well, we can affirm that part of the Stoics' teaching. They are right to think that a man's happiness does not consist in his possessions. Where have you heard that before? Christ said as much. So we can know that in, that in that much at least, the Stoics were right. But where were they wrong? Well, the Stoics knew that you couldn't find happiness in possessions, but they said, here's the secret. 
the secret then would be not in happiness from possessions, but in happiness within yourself. You should be content of yourself and just find yourself as your own resource and from your own well and your own peace with fate. You should be happy. They believe strongly in fate. You can't change anything that's going to happen, so you might as well be happy about whatever comes to pass. That was their philosophy. And you should find that happiness by looking inward, just to you yourself. William Barclay, again, contrasts the Stoics with Paul. He says the Stoic was self-sufficient, but Paul was God-sufficient. We said last week, even though Paul appropriates the Stoics' word, he, he uses it in a Christian context. Paul is not saying he is content all by himself. He clearly says in verse 13, which we'll study, Lord willing, next week, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He was indwelt and empowered by Christ. And by Christ, person dwelling within Him by faith, He was sufficient. So it was not sufficiency in His own self, but sufficiency in Christ's self. So that's a recap of last week. And last week we only got as far as being content in the temptation of adversity. Adversity poses a threat to the Christian state of contentment because we're in straightened circumstances. When when our needs are um, on our mind all the time, when we're hard-pressed, when we're suffering from lack and sleeplessness and uh, cold, as such as Paul experienced, these are times where we become discontent because we're constantly reminded by what we would prefer to have and instead our lack of it. Um, our druthers are always on our mind. So it makes adversity makes contentment a challenge to the Christian. Now we studied that last week, how a Christian should be content through adversity. But this week we want to study how a Christian should be content through prosperity. And at first, it may sound like, well, that's not too hard. If you're prospering, you shouldn't have any contentment issues. What are you going to be discontent about if you're prosperous? Well, there's, there's actually quite a lot more to it that we hope to dig into this morning. But before we get to that, I want to go back to this word for self-sufficiency. And the Greek word for it was artarcheia. And I want to again say, as I said last week, that only God truly has this. God alone is self-sufficient. God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always existed. From before we ever knew of there being time, from before all eternity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were content forevermore in themselves as, as one God in three persons. They had what theologians called aseity. All by themselves, they were sufficient. They were enough. Aseity comes from two Latin words put together that mean from yourself. From yourself, you have all and lack nothing. God alone possesses this trait. No person can have that virtue of the Stoics as the Greeks defined it. No person could truly be self-sufficient because we're creatures. Only Creator could be self-sufficient. 
a creature is dependent upon his creator. If for nothing else, he's dependent upon his creator for existence. And we know we're dependent upon our creator for existence as well as the providence of daily life. The Lord who sits at the Father's right hand upholds all things by the word of his power. In him, this universe consists together. So we are completely dependent upon the Lord in whom we live, move, and have our being. So only God can have this self-sufficiency. There's many places in the Bible that this is taught. One place is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, which says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is Yahweh thy God. God's the earth also and with all that therein is. Heaven and earth and the heaven of heavens, that is the whole universe, belongs to God. He says in another place, Exodus 19, all the earth is mine. God owns it. Everything that you see, everything that you can hear, everything that's observable in any way to your five senses is owned by God. Yahweh has a claim to it. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, You alone are Yahweh. You created the heavens, the highest heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all things and all the host of heaven worships you. Now this is to say that God owns everything because He made it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, says Psalm chapter 50, starting at verse 9. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountain, mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. God lays claim to everything in this world. So, He's the only one that can be self-sufficient. And what could we ever give Him that He doesn't already own? And how did He make it? With other stuff? Did He take something else to make the things that we see here? Some other material to make the materials that we behold here and use on this earth? No, He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. We call this creation ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing. Out of, I would say thin air, but there was no air. God made out of nothing because He's dependent upon nothing. And we're dependent upon everything that He has made and upon He Himself. So what could we ever give Him? He told us He wouldn't ask anything from us that He needed. You say, well, He does ask stuff from us. Nothing that He needs. If He was hungry, He would not tell you. Because He owns all the cattle, all the beasts of Lebanon are His. So He has no need to let you know His needs if He had needs. And He doesn't. He doesn't even have needs. So this is the situation that makes God the only self-sufficient being in the universe. I want to say one more thing about this, and it's from Job 41, verse 11. Uh, God says, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven is mine. And then Romans chapter 11 picks up on that 
quote from Job in verses 34 through 36. Or who is first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. You can't even give anything back to God. When you offer a sacrifice back to him, it's not anything that he needs. It is only what glorifies him. For of him, through him, and to him are all things. Well, we've adequately established from the scripture that God is the alone, self sufficient being in the world as we know it, in all the universe. What I want to say now from this is that God has all things. And what that means is that if we have Him, we too have all things. If we have God who has all things, then we too have all things. The source of our contentment is God's own contentment. Our sufficiency comes from God's own self-sufficiency. Let's go to the text this morning. There in verse 12, you see that Paul brings up being full. He says, I know how to live in prosperity. And then a little later he says, I know the secret of being filled. I want to talk for a minute about this word to be filled, filled or to be full. It is a word that was used of farmers feeding their cattle in order to fatten up their cattle. The cattle were filled full. They had more than enough so that they were able to grow and become food for the marketplace. So it literally means to feed with hay or grass. But it was also used of people, not in a pejorative sense, but in someone being fully satisfied. Like when you eat Thanksgiving dinner or when you have a a big party and uh, you're so full you could pop. You're so full you could bust. That sort of contentment um, or that, that sort of fullness is, is a, probably corresponds to our idioms for what expression Paul is using here. He also speaks of abounding. Abounding means having more than enough. Paul knew how to be content in those circumstances. When there was more than enough food, more than enough money, more than enough health in terms of uh, not having any concerns. Well, as we begin to talk about this, I want to say that the temptation that Christians have to be discontent in prosperity is a very hard temptation. It is very difficult. And it does a good job of obscuring its presence from us. That's the insidiousness of this temptation to be discontent in prosperity. But it is a temptation and it is very difficult and it is very challenging and detrimental to our spiritual health. You have some theologians who have said that uh, the temptation to be discontent in prosperity is as hard or harder as the temptation to be discontent in adversity. Matthew Henry is one. He said to a prosperous condition, to know how to abound, how to be full, uh, so as not to be proud or secure so as not to be proud or secure or luxurious. And this is as hard a lesson as the other. For the temptations of fullness and prosperity are not less 
than those of affliction and want. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was another who said, Is it a more difficult thing to have a contented mind when abased or when abounding? I do not know whether we can ever answer the question. They are both extremely difficult. And one is as difficult as the other. There's a place in Scripture that indicates the difficulty of both temptations and puts them on par with each other. It's the prayer of Augur, the son of Jacob, in the book of Proverbs chapter 30, beginning at verse 7. Listen to what he prays. Two things I ask of you, speaking to the Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and still and profane the name of my God. The Apostle Paul recognizes that prosperity is a fatal condition to many who call themselves or have called themselves by the name of Christ. Now this text we read last week and we read it this morning and I'm just going to read a portion of it again. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 9 through 10. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Remember how I just said some who call themselves by the name of Christ or who have called themselves by the name of Christ have fallen prey to this very temptation and made shipwreck of their faith because of the temptation to be discontent amidst prosperity. They had an abundance, and yet within that abundance, they perished by the sin of discontentment. Paul says that, that they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That is, they were disciples, but they departed from discipleship of Christ because of their lust for money. Our Lord also diagnosed discontentment amid abundance as a fatal condition. Here's what He said after He confronted the rich young ruler. What should I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler said. Jesus gave him His answer. Keep the law. The rich young ruler said He had done that all, but wanted to know what else. Go and sell all that you have. Follow Me. He didn't like that answer. He went away sad. But Jesus picks up on that. And He says, it says here, Jesus looked round about and said to His disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at His words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. I want to pause there in a minute before I continue reading what Christ says and say, notice how He switched what He said. First He said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. Now He says it that way because He's saying He's diagnosing this as a severe temptation. The temptation to be discontent amid prosperity is so severe that of those who 
have all that they want, so to speak, and are abounding, of those, most of them are still discontent. And most of them are still covetous and will perish in their sin. But he clarifies he doesn't mean all rich people. He doesn't mean that if you're prosperous, therefore necessarily you cannot enter into the kingdom of God because he says in the very next verse, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And so we can look through the Scripture and see all the examples of very wealthy followers of God. Uh, Abraham and um, many people in his posterity. Job. um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. um, Many rich people can be pointed out throughout the Scriptures who were not consumed with covetousness. They did not trust in their riches. So we make that distinction because the Lord makes the distinction. And yet, He diagnoses it as such a harrowing temptation that to have it is... uh, to have riches is oftentimes to fall prey to it because it is so easy to begin to trust in them. He says in, in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, says, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. I think that we uh, hear some of the things in the Bible and have heard them maybe many times and no longer wonder at them, that we no longer think hard about them and meditate upon them, and that uh, we no longer chuckle when we hear them because there surely is humor in what Jesus says. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. How big is the eye of a needle? It is so tiny. Uh, maybe, Maybe some of our seamstresses are able to get the thread through the eye of the needle on the first try. But me, anytime I've ever tried to do that, I always miss like the first three times. And then finally I might get it through. And that's a little bitty thread. Jesus says it's easier for a big old camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because of the sin of discontentment and how easy it is for men to begin to trust in riches. His whole point is that our salvation is of the Lord. With, with men, it's impossible to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. One of the problems with abundance is the spiral of consumption that unfolds. The, the, the fact is, when we have an abundance of possessions, we're still not happy. We still want more. And the human appetite for things is infinite. This is illustrated by the story of the French philosopher Denis Diderot. I want to read a selection from James Clear. He's an author. This happens to be from his blog, and there's a similar, if not identical, selection out of his book, Atomic Habits. But he writes about this spiral of consumption as seen in the life of Denis Diderot. He says, The famous French philosopher Denis Diderot lived nearly his entire life in poverty. 
but that all changed in 1765. Diderot was 52 years old, and his daughter was about to be married, but he could not afford to provide a dowry. Despite his lack of wealth, Diderot's name was well known because he was the co-founder and writer of Encyclopedia, one of the most comprehensive encyclopedias of the time. When Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, heard of Diderot's financial troubles, she offered to buy his library from him for 1,000 Great British pounds, which is approximately 50,000 U.S. dollars in 2015 dollars. Now, I actually went back and tried to do the math on that, and if it is Great British pounds uh, from 1765, it looks to me more like in U.S. dollars it would be 250,000 dollars. So, um, I don't know if it maybe was quite a bit of some more, but 50,000 or 250,000, he came into some cash. Back to quoting James Clear, suddenly Diderot had money to spare. Shortly after this lucky sale, Diderot acquired a new scarlet robe. That's when everything went wrong. Diderot's scarlet robe was beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that he immediately noticed how out of place it seemed when surrounded by the rest of his common possessions. In his words, there was, quote, no more coordination, no more unity, no more beauty between his robe and the rest of his items. The philosopher soon felt the urge to buy some new things to match the beauty of his robe. He replaced his old rug with a new one from Damascus. He decorated his home with beautiful sculptures and a better kitchen table. He bought a new mirror to place above the mantel, and his straw chair was relegated to the antechamber by a leather chair. These reactive purchases have become known as the Diderot effect. The Diderot effect states that obtaining a new possession often creates a spiral of consumption, which leads you to acquire more new things. As a result, we end up buying things that our previous selves never needed to feel happy or fulfilled. Well, surely you have felt the Diderot effect. Surely you have set your heart upon one thing. And then when you finally got it, you found that magically there was still one more thing you were missing. Or two or three more things that you were still without. And you had to go pursue those things as well. That's because the human appetite is infinite in its covetousness, in its discontentment. Now the Lord is not against us having possessions. He's not against us having an abundance, nor against us being full. Remember Paul says he's learned the secret of being full and of abounding. Paul thought it was proper at times for a Christian to be full and to abound, um, both with money or with food or whatever else. So the Scripture instead is warning us about our frame of heart when we come into a time of fullness or of abundance. And this was a warning particularly that Israel was given by the Lord through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord goes through their inheritance into Canaan and He reminds them everything He's prophesied to them about this place, that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. When you dig stones in this land, it's stones of iron. Now that's a, that's a good thing in the Stone Age because you need iron in order to make tools and to make other valuable metal, metal goods. 
He said that there were fountains flowing throughout it. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. We know about the size of the grapes, the cluster of grapes and the pomegranates that was put on a staff between two men that carried it when they went to scope out the land. This was a land that the Lord said was a land without scarceness, where they would not lack anything, in whose hills they could dig brass and iron. Now the warning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting at verse 10. When you have eaten and are full, let me pause there and say, here's that image of being full. The situation of Paul describing here in Philippians 4 verse 12. This is exactly the, the, the circumstance. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Beware that you not forget the Lord your God in not keeping His commandments and His judgments and His statutes which I command you this day, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So I want to say there, God is describing a when. He is describing a time in which He will bring His people into a situation where their silver and gold are multiplied and where they can eat bread without scarceness. A time of fullness. This is appropriate when the Lord ordains it for His people. As the Proverbs say, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and He adds no sorrow to it. But it requires He in order for there to be no sorrow added to it. Left to our fallen selves, it will be sorrowful. We will be pierced through with many sorrows. So the risk is when you're full, once you've eaten, and you have no scarceness, the risk is that you'll forget God. That's exactly what Augur the son of Jacob was worried about. Don't, don't make me either poor nor rich. He didn't want to be rich because then he would be full. And say, who is the Lord? Why do I need God? Who is God to me? I've done all this for myself. I don't need anything. I've got self-sufficiency. It's self-sufficiency rather than God's sufficiency. That's the risk. Later in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, And you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He that gives you power to get wealth that He may establish His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. There's the reminder that when you do come into wealth, if your silver and your gold are multiplied, if there's plenty of food in the fridge and it's overflowing through the cabinets and the pantry, who gave you the power to get all that? God did. You could not get that yourself. You're completely dependent upon Him. In Him you live, move, and have your being, as we said. And you're upheld simply because Christ is sustaining this whole universe by the Word of His power. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. And that includes your power to get wealth. David understood this. David had great success. 
He did come into wealth, but he also had success more so in his military victories. He, he defeated Philistines. He defeated Amalekites and Amorites. Victory after victory came to this man, and he always attributed it to the Lord. And what does he pray in the text that we read this morning from 1 Chronicles 29? Verse 11, he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and You exalt Yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from You, and You rule over all. And in Your hand is power and might, and it lies in Your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, O oh, oh God, we thank You and praise you, Your glorious name. O oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build You a house for Your holy name, it is from Your hand and all is Yours. See how David goes back to the doctrine of creation to remember that he cannot really give anything to God that he needs. Everything that he has offered to God is something God already owned. And David only rented it from God as a tenant for a period of time because it was in God's power to make him great and to give him the power to get wealth. Well, we need to think about this because we prosper more than we think. And I have to be careful that I contextualize the comments that I'm about to make because I am speaking to people in this room and to people in this country because I know that there are people, uh, there are some people even within this country that this will not be true of. But there are many people the world over that this is not true of. But I want to make a few comments on how we prosper more than we think. And I want to just bring up some of the typical things that we have that are conveniences, more so than the rest of the world, and certainly more so than all generations in the history of the world. You know how hot it is right now? Trying to be outside? I tried to be outside for 15 minutes. One day at, in the heat of the day this week, I couldn't make it. I had to come in for a drink. That's how bad it was. Now, I came into climate control, air conditioning. I had that luxury. That is a luxury. I'm a rich man to have air conditioning. In the wintertime, we are rich people in order to have heat in our homes. We have vehicles to get into town within an hour. To get wherever we want to be by the end of the day just about. With our communication, we can speak instantly with people that we haven't seen in a while. We can instantly call up a loved one if we need to know how they're doing. We have great advancements in medicine. We have treatment for many injuries and diseases that would have been unbearable or unsurvivable in generations past. We also have servants. We have dishwashers. We have laundry machines. We have plumbing. We have all sorts of things. We, the people in this room, we have luxury after luxury that the Apostle Paul didn't have that most of the people in the world don't have. We are very well off. We live like kings. The king of Babylon might have given half his kingdom to you. 
just to, just to have those conveniences that I've listed off so far. And there's many more. These are our luxuries. So we prosper more than we think. Do you think that you prosper? That's discontentment. And that's how insidious discontentment is. That's how deceitful it is. You are so well off. You are so wealthy. You are so rich. And your flesh and perhaps the influence of the devil and the temptations he sends has you convinced that you don't have enough. That you should be discontent and that you should want more. What a deception. What rationalization for our covetousness. And we should be ashamed if ever we are discontent. Remember what Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, and having food and clothing, let us therewith be content. When we compare ourselves to others, we are robbed of our joy because comparison is the thief of joy. Instead, we need to compare ourselves not to what we'd like to have or what we've seen that other people have, but to what we need and to the God who knows what we need. And remember the truth that no good thing will He withhold from those that walk uprightly. Psalm 84. No good thing will He withhold from those that walk uprightly. So we have to beware of what we compare ourselves to. There's a story of Sempronius and Codrus. And I looked and looked to verify this story and I couldn't. So let's just take it as that maybe it's unverifiable. But it, it seems to ring true. These would be two characters from antiquity. Sempronius was uh, a wealthy man who complained about his clothing. And he wanted a new suit because he was ashamed to wear what he had to the theater. His gown had become a little threadbare. And when he got that new suit, he gave his old clothes to a man named Codrus. And the poor man was ecstatic. And he thanked God for his new clothing. Uh, just illustrating how one man's trash is another man's treasure and how the needs that you think you have in your head are so relative. And in fact, we prosper. We prosper more than we think. We are so blessed. And in fact, we should probably be preparing ourselves for harder times because the world can get much more difficult than it currently is for us to live in. I ran, across, uh, I ran across some teaching in the last few weeks that was very helpful. And the challenge was that this generation of Americans is the weakest generation yet. The weakest, feeblest generation yet. And within this teaching, the man quoted someone else saying that hard times make strong men. Strong men create good times. Weak men create hard times. So if we are the weakest generation, if that could be said and is true, then we should prepare for hard times. And, uh, and we, we need to be people who are content in any and every circumstance because Paul doesn't put a limit on it. He says there in verse 11, content in whatever circumstances I am presently, and then in verse 12, he's learned the secret in any and every circumstances of being content. So without limitation, we need to learn a, a universal contentment. 
that will have us content in all situations. I want to lean again upon Jeremiah Burroughs. One of the things he said in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, is that Christians should be the most satisfied people of all in this world. Well, that makes perfect sense. But then he said this. Later in the book, he said Christians should be the most dissatisfied people in all the world. Now, what did he mean by that? How do you make sense of that in a teaching on contentment? And here's what he said. If you were offered the kingdoms of the world at your feet, all the wealth of the world, and if that was yours in your possession, if you are a Christian, that should not fill up your soul. You should still be discontent because of your hunger and thirst for God alone, Christ alone. He alone is what makes you content. He strengthens you for any and every circumstance. And in that sense, Christians are both the most satisfied people in the world and the most dissatisfied people in the world. That is, if you have a Christian in abundance, that Christian should be able to tell you, I'm not happy because I'm full. I'm not happy because I have no lack and more than enough. I am happy because I have Christ and I dwell in Christ and Christ dwells in me. And that treasure of being in Christ is worth more to us than anything in the whole world. As Jesus said, what will a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The desire of our soul is a desire that will only be content in God. And that's also partly where the Stoics are wrong. Saying that you could be content within your own soul, within your own self. Your soul was made to only be content in God. Jeremiah Burroughs says, My brethren, the reason... The reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not that you don't have enough of them. The reason is that those things are not proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God Himself. Think back to the story of the rich young ruler. He came before Jesus and asked, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him what he should do. And he knew that wasn't quite enough. What else? Go and sell all that you have and follow me. And he went away sad. Now there's a tradition in the church that says that man was redeemed. And uh, ultimately, that after he went away sad, he later came back in repentance. But for the moment, I just want to talk about the fact of his reaction when he was face to face with Jesus. He went away sad for he had great possessions. He would rather choose the things of this world than to choose to be with Christ. That man was face to face with God. Face to face with Jesus Christ. And he he traded for that in that moment. Going back to his house. Going back to his possessions instead of following Christ. What a bad trade. What a poor investment that he would settle for such cheap things. And his soul was made for more. His soul was made to follow after Christ. As Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, 
that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. These verses are Paul's secret of contentment. How was he content in adversity? Well, because he counted everything loss. And he counted Christ as gain. He had Christ, so no matter the adversity, he still had gain in Christ. How is he content in prosperity? Well, no matter what you tried to give him, he already had him in him who had all things, who has all things. And having him in him who has all things, he also had all things. This is the contentment of Christian people. That we can be the most satisfied and the most dissatisfied people to the glory of Christ in all the world. Let's give thanks to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made us in your own image. That we can only be content in Christ. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ and for the surpassing value of knowing him. I ask that you would make this congregation to know him and his, and his worth to such a degree that we would show that rare jewel of Christian contentment. Make us to be exemplars of it, that we would shine forth with it as a testimony to the world, that we would have contentment in you and you alone, and that no matter what we are given to be full with or to abound in, that that would never be enough, but that we would have our thirst and the desire of our heart set only upon you. And no matter what we lack or are deprived of, it would not matter to us, for we know we have all riches in you who have all things, who has all things. For this we ask you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand to worship the Lord with your red hymnals? The hymn is number 424, Shepherd of Souls, Refresh and Bless. 424.